Hello and welcome. You are listening to The Refuge Podcast, and this is the first episode of a mini-series devoted to exploring policy issues and creating a bridge between people with lived experience, researchers, and policymakers. I'm your host, Wegdan Abdelmoman, and today our theme is collaboration. There is a quote that goes, collaboration allows us to know more than we are capable of knowing by ourselves. How can we bring together the expertise and experience of researchers, policymakers, and the community to create meaningful initiatives and projects. The focus of today's discussion is on refugee and immigrant youth initiatives, but essentially we can apply these themes to any endeavor we undertake. We have some great guests today from diverse and interesting backgrounds. Let's start with Dr. Howard Ramos. He's a political sociologist and chair of the sociology department at Western University. His work focuses on issues of social justice and mobilization. We also have Hanen Nana, who arrived in Canada in 2016 as a Syrian refugee. She's currently the Ontario Regional Advisor at the Liberal Research Bureau in the Parliament of Canada. She's also the Outreach Coordinator of the Syrian Canadian Foundation and the founder of BAM, Books, Art, and Music, Collective for Youth. Last but not least, we have David Kashabak. He's a Senior Director for Settlement and Integration Policy at Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada, so the IRCC. Thank you so much for joining us today, Howard, Hanan, and David. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Same thing. Thanks for having us. Great. So how about we jump right in? And I think it would be valuable to start with why. Why, in your opinion and experience, is dialogue and collaboration important between people with lived experience, researchers, and policy? So we want to understand the value. And how about we start with you, Howard? It's really important to be able to look at issues from a multitude of different perspectives. So if you come at it just with academic lens, you can find the evidence to test your hypotheses and really miss the mark. If you also only come at it from a lens of lived experience, you might suffer the problem of thinking that you're experience is completely different than everybody else's and then find out, no, 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 lots of people have had it. Or, or quite the opposite, think that you're the typical experience and then realize that, no, 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 the situation's different for others. So it allows people to kind of begin that dialogue. And from the policy end, it really helped to figure out the opportunities that are there to make a difference and make impact. So if you only have one of those experiences, you're only talking to one set of audiences and you end up having blinders and pitfalls. So like with most things, more diversity and more voices usually makes it better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And thanks for sharing it from the three perspectives. How about your perspective, Hanan, as a refugee and a newcomer to Canada? Well, I think in everything I do in life, I feel like collaboration is the key to success. But also when we combine collaboration with dialogue with stakeholder, I think we see power. So it's powerful to have dialogue and conversation open, especially when we address community issue or when we talk about shaping policy. I remember I was working with two consultants on a research and the theme of the research was sensitive to community. It was about child marriage and sexual abuse in Syria, in the Syrian content, more specifically the issue targeting Syrian displaced inside Syria. And when we tried to work from an international level, from uh, three of us, one of them is in Turkey and two of us are in Canada. It was really hard to address the issue on behalf of the group. Uh, so we decided to work collectively and collaborate with stakeholders. We did not work only with the victims. We decided to work with the husbands and the mothers and the teachers and the cultural uh, leaders, the religious leaders and the local authorities. And we did see power because we did not only see the benefit of sharing knowledge and developing those interpersonal and communication skills while working together, but we saw that we were able to equip our research with so much data, but also so 
so much insights because each one of us comes from different personal experience, but also comes with different perspectives. So that added so much to our research perspective. So it sounds like different pieces of the puzzle sort of coming together to give a, a better picture. How about you, David, from the policy level? Howard mentioned it, Hanan sort of amplified it. Between policymakers, government, researchers, community partners, service delivery organizations, that's really the driving force between a lot of the success that we see and trying to make sure that we continue to strive for success in the space that we're in. You know, when we take a step back and we think of federally, so outside of Quebec, Quebec runs its own, administers its own settlement program, but federally we do fund over 500 organizations across the country to support the settlement integration of newcomers from coast to coast. And that's in addition to a network also of organizations and partners that provincial and territorial governments support and fund. So against that backdrop of many actors, I think the piece that Howard said right at the outset, it's that diversity of perspectives, but the diversity of tools that really starts to help us assess, you know, are we hitting the right marks? What are we missing? And then being able to sort of iterate program design and response. Yeah. So diversity of tools, diversity of perspectives, that really does bring it together. So now that we're all in agreement that it is a good idea to have us all collaborating together, I'm curious about your personal experiences or examples that you know about or read about in theory or in practice of actually successful collaborations and what made it successful in your opinion? I'll talk more about the practice because I like whatever I'm working on now, I operate it collectively with community partners, but I'll share a personal project that's dear to my heart. I've been working on that project since 2018. So when I funded BAM Collective, BAM stands for Books Are Music Collective, and the collective works on Ontario. We work on engaging equity-seeking groups in policy and community work through community engagement and arts. But when I met Hani, who is also a Syrian refugee, arrived to Saskatchewan back in 2015, both of us agreed to similar gaps. We noticed that there are gaps for community organizing and more specifically equity-seeking groups. So we decided to come together and bridge the issue. And we uh, launched BAM Collective. And through BAM, we met so many amazing people. One of them was Jenna Robert, who is an Indigenous ambassador and helped us so much to improve our knowledge about Indigenous history. So when we sat together, we did notice the gap that the newcomers to Canada have less access on Indigenous history. And uh, we, Hany and I, from our own experiences, both refugees in Toronto, we did notice that we are equipped with the wrong education about Indigenous people. We were told that Indigenous people are addicted to alcohol and drugs and are not welcome toward new immigrants. So we decided to invest in ourselves and work collectively with community partners and through collaboration to see if this is true or not. So we applied for funding and we reached out to community partners. We invited newcomers youth, more specifically Syrians. We wanted to work with our community. We invited Indigenous youth, organizations that are serving Indigenous and newcomers. We invited policymakers and government and we came together and we promoted the event as a conversation, like come sit with us and let's talk about this gap. We hosted our conversation last year in 2021 on July 1st, and we talked about the residential schools. At that time, it was a horrible discovery across Canada. So we wanted to address that one. And as a refugee, I did not feel at one point I will be able to connect with Indigenous community and feel that we have similar stories, for example, being forced out of the land or going through trauma or violence. So I was able to connect. And when we reflected on the conversation, we did notice that collaboration was the key for us because without the collaboration, we would not be able to sit together, we would not be able to share the same vision, we would not be able to bring these youth together to discuss their trauma, which is a hard thing to talk about. So we made change possible. And since that day until today, we've been collaborating with several community organizations 
organizations and individuals to open more conversations on this important issue so all of us can ensure past injustices are not repeated and newcomers and refugees are well equipped with the resources, but also together we're working towards truth and reconciliation. So collaboration is important in everything we're doing. That's a great example, Hanan. And as an immigrant myself, I think it's so valuable to have these kind of discussions about the history and the indigenous people and various other groups that are part of the community and finding common ground because we do have a lot of overlap and a lot of common ground that can help us weave together. So I think that's a great initiative and a very good example. I wonder if you have another example for us, Howard, from your experience. I can think of many examples. And one of the things that's very common across them is very much as Hanan was just saying, is that it's the collaboration and the people. Jerry Mills, who used to be the director of the Immigrant Settlement Association of Nova Scotia, used to always say that people bring people, people keep people. And I always kind of facetiously add, and people get things done. So this is always kind of core to every good collaboration that I've been a part of. But I can think of some great examples of, for instance, with the Syrian cohort, when newcomers first started arriving to Halifax, where I was living at the time, people were beginning to scramble. And there was a lot of lost memory from the last major waves of refugees that came to Canada during the 1990s with the former Yugoslavia or the first war in the Middle East, or, you know, the Indochine cohort that was very sizable in the 1970s. So academics could play a role at kind of saying, hang on a second, we remember some of the research that was done. Here were some of the things. But of course, Syrians are very different than Indochine migrants and very different than people fleeing from the former Yugoslavia. At the same time, policymakers had to deliver service and make sure that people were able to settle. And very quickly, it became important to talk to people who had settled previously, who were newcomers and who were refugees to be able to do on-the-spot translation. A lot of the assumptions around language were wrong. A lot of the assumptions on even family size were wrong. We often, as Canadian policymakers, not just in Nova Scotia, but across the country, went into thinking, okay, we need to have apartments or houses for families of four people and found families of seven or eight or more. And so it's a bit of a rambling way of, of giving an example of having the academics who could kind of talk about the past case and then also document, but being able to have that connection through the service provider organization to other newcomers who could help fill in the gaps from what had been done with other cohorts to also working as a mediator with the policymakers who had to deliver services where they had projects really ended up meaning that in that community, there was a really good level of integration and a very nimble adaptation. And so to me, that's really key is just making sure that everybody feels that they have a voice and everybody's talking to one another. That does bring in a lot of useful points to think about regarding the importance of collaboration. David, I wonder if you have also perspectives to share with us. Thanks. I really like how Howard's sort of nimble adaptation and I think, you know, sort of consider the huge effort societal, right? And I think that's the big thing when we think of, it's always a bit of whole society effort to think of Operation Syrian Refugee in 2015-16 really as the first of what has become, I think, waves of the same. We're facing a bit of the same right now with resettlement out of Afghanistan. And it's that, as you say, nimble adaptation. What lessons that we learned can we transpose? What's new? How are we making sure we've got our ear to the ground in terms of what some of the specificities are? One example of Egdan of the importance of partnership, I sort of go right back to the pandemic from March, whatever the date was, March 13th was the date that sticks in my mind. But from one day to the other, I think a complete and total pivot from a model of service delivery, and this is those 500 organizations plus that out in the field, having to usually see in person much, you know, used to sort of delivering like that from one day to the next, a pivot to what was going to need to be 
remote or online or via telephone or text message. There was no playbook, none of us. Government, without sounding like I'm simplifying, but I think that it's in that partnership and those relationships that allowed, okay, what are the flexibilities? How do we adapt the program delivery, the rules and the eligibility to sort of get people the tools, the equipment, the way to make sure that at the end of the day, despite all of that disruption, that clients and the folks that needed those services the most continued to receive them. And what we saw year on year, where agencies may not have necessarily served remotely, 97% of all of our service providers in that first year started to deliver something that they hadn't remotely online. So where does that bring us after? We'll see. But I think it's a testament to the fact it wasn't just hunkered down. It was actually saying, all right, how do we move this forward? What do we do? The pandemic is a really great example of how we had to move and get to work together and make this work. Even in the realm of remote work, I've shifted to 100% remote work. I had the bumps and difficulties at first, but eventually getting everybody involved and trying to make it work actually made it happen. And even the provision of healthcare too, and having the input of service users on how they'd like care to be delivered to them has been really valuable. And we conducted a study on that, but won't get too much into this. So, you know, we first started talking about why it's important and the value it can bring to us as a community and some examples of how this was actually done. Now, our listeners might be wondering, how can we make it happen? How can we include the voices of those with lived experience in program development, in policy development? And I would like to put it out there and get some of your ideas and expertise. How about we start with you, David? For two years, we've run the second cohort, brings together just under, I think, 20 youth from Diverse perspectives in Canada between 16 and I think 24 years old with often lived experience, either as a refugee or as an international student or as a migrant worker. And what we've done with this group is actually use it as a bit of a sounding board, but also an advisory in an advisory function to give the department a bit of that sounding board and a bit of that, as you say, lived experience. Like, And we've used them to sort of get a sense of the perspectives of, say, international students and what has that meant in terms of their, um, their experiences in Canada. Looking at last year, what we did do is use is kind of engage the youth advisory group and brought the minister into the conversation as well on the experience with anti-racism. And it continues to be a huge challenge. But this is a place where this group of youth, and it was awe-inspiring, I'll say, because it really took it to heart, produced 13, 15 recommendations from their experience and sort of reflected it back to the department. And we were able to then give them a bit of a microphone, our megaphone, I should say, and be able to bring them into a conversation with not just one, but two federal ministers, the entirety of the settlement sector, and then internally with our senior management cadre and be able to share those recommendations and what it meant to them with a much broader audience. I think that was a good example of something that really builds from lived experience. And then how do we start to say, all right, What's important? Like, how do we use this then to inform delivery, policy, thinking? And I think that was a great, you know, for me anyways, a, a really good example of something that I think had impact. I like that example, David. So basically having a youth advisory or basically an advisory committee as part of the working group or the decision-making group. And I do believe that, Hanan, you're an Ontario Regional Advisor at Parliament? Yes, correct. So tell us more about that. I work as a regional advisor at the House of Commons and more specifically the Liberal Research Bureau. And my job is a little bit different, but I advise caucus members. So I work with caucus members and I work with their staff and advise them to complete their parliamentary tasks, more specifically in Ontario. 
So I attend sub-regional and issues meetings. I have resources, so I share it with them, which I find really helpful, not just support the caucus and their stuff, but it's a learning experience for me. And I get to interact and add my perspective and my advices to them. But I wanted to reflect on what David said. So David, I wanted to say thank you for including youth. We don't see too often people engaging with youth when it comes to programming and when it comes to decision-making. So this is a great step. I work in a youth-led collective as well, BAM, and we advocate to engage youth. So this is an important step for us to use the energy of the youth and listen to them. And maybe, Wigden, I can tell you a little bit about refugees and what I'm noticing as a gap in the system. For refugees, I think we're still not there yet at engaging them in decision-making and in policy and program development. I think there is a lot to do. And um, when I try to see the reasons of why we're not engaging refugees, I always look back at my experience because I, at one point, was a refugee and I used to live in Turkey, for example, I did not have a PR status and I was always seen as a refugee. And when I arrived to Canada back 2016, it was a privilege to me to come to Toronto. But of course, as a newcomer, I had to experience some challenges. And I remember the looks of people because people look at refugees and newcomers as vulnerables, but they don't recognize that vulnerability is a strength. This is from my personal experience. Vulnerability is a strength and we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that also refugees come from different backgrounds and experiences. They have uh, talents and skills and we need to work with them to implement those skills and talents. But unfortunately, mostly we see people discriminating against them because of their status or because of their cultural differences or because of their language barrier. So there is a lot to do and how we can do that. It might seem simple for people, but it's not because I see people having challenge to do so. Implementing resources to engage with refugees and give them a seat at the table. Similar to what David did with the Youth Council Advisory Committee, it's so important to give them a seat at the table, whether you are shaping a policy or implementing a program. Just a quick example of the Syrian Canadian Foundation. I worked with them last in the past few years on a program to address racism, bullying, and discrimination that refugees face. I remember when I talked to the executive director, they refused to develop a program without engaging with refugees, which was so important. We hosted focus group with them. We hired refugees ambassadors. We listened to them and we asked them, how do you want the program to be? What do you want the elements to be? They gave us their answers and then we worked on shaping the program. And then we came back recently and we asked them, how does it sound for you? So it's so important to always consult with the refugees and have them part of your program before launching anything or working on a policy. Thank you very much for that, Tana. And I think one of the suggestions you have is to actually give them a seat at the table. Coming from a developing country myself, coming to Canada, I had no idea that we could be part of the decision making or there is actually a seat for us. And um, perhaps if I can add a thought is that awareness among refugees and immigrants that there are opportunities for you to have your voice heard and to share your perspective and actually contribute to the well-being of yourself and, of course, other people in the group. So uh, I think that's one thing. And then you also mentioned addressing the sort of stigma around newcomers and refugees as well. These are all really valuable points. I wonder, Howard, if you also have thoughts and suggestions about how to better engage people. Well, I think that a lot of what Hannah and David have shared kind of make me think of one of the key ingredients for all stakeholders or all people who want to engage others is an ethos of humility from all people involved in a research partnership or a collaboration. So from the policymakers, it's humility to recognize that don't just talk to the usual suspects, try to reach out, try to pay attention to where there are absences and voices and recognize very much as Hanan was saying is that everybody has a contribution and everybody has a resilience and don't make assumptions. On the research end, the same thing with respect to the relationship with community members or people with lived experience, but the same with policymakers. And I would say that for the academics, in some sense, when people from community are participating as well, having some humility for the process, 
and recognizing policy has a different kind of timeline. You know, I always joke around with students that policy often operates on a scale where the first year it can't be done. Then the second year, somebody says, well, show me some evidence. That's when the academics can offer some potentially good stuff. And then the third year, if something really is happening, the person who you talk to in the first year says, hey, I think you should do whatever you said in the first year, but they completely forgot that you said it. And to me, this is where humility really steps in and academics are terrible at this. Academics always say, hey, hang on a second. I told you in year one that blah, 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 blah. At that moment, it's having the humility to say, hey, I'm here to help you. I think that's a great idea. And then it moves on. And the pessimistic in me sometimes says, and you know, in year four, you get some version that's not quite what year one was. And four years have passed and now you have new ideas and new young people asking for changes. But to me, that's not a terrible thing. Thing either. It's important to have some flow. It's important to have new voices. It's important to reach out, think about those absences. It's also important to have some stability to make sure that things are sustainable for the long run. And so as David and, and then we're speaking, I, I just kept thinking about this moment of humility that is so essential to really developing a good relationship with people. I see you nodding enthusiastically, David, especially as Howard was explaining sort of the timeline and policymaking. I wonder if you have any reflections on that. I think the value of humility, right? I think sometimes the idea whose time hasn't come or just show me some data. And I think sometimes it's how something builds and then acquires a bit of a momentum. So sometimes I think from a policymaker's perspective as well, I think there's a lot of the same. Where's the inspiration coming from? What's the need? And I think that's to both you and, and Hanan's perspectives. And what you've said is we need to be making sure that sort of, Hanan, you used the word vulnerability, but I think it's making sure though, that as we're looking at the outcomes or at the landscape, that things that we're not dropping off the needs of a specific cohort, individual, group, whatever. And I think that's where humility to Howard's language really in our outlook. Because otherwise it's, again, the fallacy of, you know what your process is and you know what you look at, but you sort of drop off and you're at the risk of overlooking or forgetting. Thank you, David. You mentioned data and you mentioned collecting information in order to help us make decisions, especially in research and policy. I'm going to go a little meta with this question. I do want to get a, your thoughts and reflections on it. I've noticed that a lot of programs and initiatives that do support refugees and immigrants focus on providing valuable information and support to help people get their first job, find suitable accommodation or get into school. And often these are very helpful to get youths and families started living in Canada. However, what can often be overlooked is that job that we're supporting them to find. How meaningful is that job? Or how do we measure how much youth are thriving in school? Or how do we quantify or try to capture how a family is feeling a sense of belonging in their community? So basically my question is, how do we include such intangible information to help us inform decision-making for immigrants and refugees? I'm happy to start sort of a rejoinder from what we were just saying. I think it's a variety of sources. I think it's in the importance of those partnerships. We think of high level, a lot of the sort of what we'll call program outcome data. And we've just launched the first ever settlement outcomes report, trying to bring everything together in terms of clients of the settlement program and starting to compare to your point or your question back then is like, all right, what seems to be working? What can we tell from what we're collecting and what we're assessing? if there's gaps, and then it's trying to overlay other sources of information. Like we administer a newcomer outcome survey. Again, starting to try to get into, all right, what's that high level data not telling us? Where can we start to get some of the gaps? And then I think to the experience that, you know, sort of how it brings to the table, and I've read your stuff before, and I think we've had a chance to talk sometimes around outcome and how some immigrant uh, cohorts are doing. I think it then is bringing in those other perspectives to say, all right, where's your blind spots? What is the data that you're collecting not telling you? And then that gives us the ability to start to really improve on 
on it and say, all right, let's be mindful of what we're not collecting or what we can't collect. And I mean, I would expand or just say that it's really important to triangulate. And so to me, I don't separate information from data. You know, so you can have interviews with families and that's data. You can have narratives, that's data, photo voice, that's data, a survey, that's data. And what's really important is to triangulate across them because each of those will have a different audience and will have different impact. So somebody's story will be very meaningful at putting something into light where people can begin to understand why it's important. But then they might say, well, okay, great. But how many people have that story? And that's when the survey becomes important. Or for some folks, if there's literacy issues or it's about showing cultural impact, well, then sometimes photo voice or drawing or art's a better way of, you know, giving a means of access, especially for younger people, if for kids uh, or youth, teens. So to me, it's a matter of always making sure that we understand and appreciate information and realize that it's not one piece of information over the other, but rather saying, are we seeing similar things across pieces of information and having the audacity to say, okay, the qualitative data or the lived experience stories or the photo voice is telling me this, let's see if I can try and see if it's broader. And so that's where the partnerships and collaborations come in again, rather than kind of talking in silos. I'll just add one quick thought, but I feel like my fellow speakers addressed everything. And I think when we talk about service, of course, they're important. And when we talk about consulting with the group, is important as well. But I'll talk about the gaps that I see as a refugee that my parents, when they came, I was the only kid who spoke English. So everything was sent to me, whether it's emails or surveys or papers to fill out. So I think we will need to also see the gaps. So for example, if we are targeting parents, I think if there is a language barrier, it's so important to consult, like hosting a focus group, whether now people are comfortable virtually or in person and having someone who speaks the same language as them so they can openly speak about their concerns or share their opinions and feedback. So I think it's important because most often parents send those surveys or forward the email to their kids and the kids are filling out the survey on their behalf. I think it's important to offer opportunities for parents, but also for the youth. When it comes to surveys versus focus group, I would always go to focus group just from my experience working with newcomers and refugees. I feel they're more open to speak when they have someone talking to them and addressing the question because there are gaps. One is the language barrier and two, it could be technological barrier. Like not everyone feels confident to fill surveys or know how to fill surveys. And also something I noticed not all newcomers and refugees have even email addresses. So it's important to also see that as well. And I think we also spoke not just about collaboration, but we spoke about stories and how we are actually seeing collaboration as a success. And we mentioned the Syrian content. So when I see now the Syrian program that was operated back in 2015, I think Canada championed in that program. And we should take it as an example for future programs to work with other refugees group. And now as someone who is fully integrated, and when I remember in my first two years, I did not understand what is politics or voting in like school and apply for a job. And now I write blogs and content for Canadians to know how to vote. I feel like I was given resources and I was given opportunities as a recent newcomer and I took those opportunities. So it's important for newcomers to take those opportunities. Even if you find the opportunity a little bit challenging or overwhelming, it's okay because this will be a learning experience or a win for you. And when I compare the Syrian program to the Afghan program, I see differences. I feel like the excitement from Canadians was more seen back in the days. So I think we will need to work more on the excitement part and we need to encourage Canadians across Canada to collaborate because the Syrian program was success because of collaboration. We saw mosques and church and the schools and teachers and people from the community coming together to bring refugees and support them. So we need to see that as well to be able to run our program successfully. Thank you very much. That's very inspiring. Thanks so much for that, Hanan. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed listening. And before you go, I've summarized some of the take-home messages from today's discussion. One, 
Collaborations between community partners, researchers, and policymakers are important as they allow us to bring in the rich diversity of people's experiences, talents, and expertise to make better decisions. Two, humility is one of the key ingredients to healthy partnerships, allowing us to reach out, not make assumptions, ask questions, and pay attention to where voices are not being heard. Three, implementing resources to engage with refugees and giving them a seat at the table will allow for services that better cater to their needs. For example, involving a youth advisory committee for youth-related projects. Four, when evaluating outcome reports, it's valuable to ask questions like, what is the high-level data not telling us? Where are our blind spots? And are we seeing similar things across sources of information? Five, we can collect equally meaningful information through different formats, including family interviews, narratives, surveys, and photo voice. Each format serves a different audience and has unique impacts. Six, when targeting immigrant and refugee adults and parents in particular, it's important to be mindful of language and technological barriers that may exist. In these cases, a same language focus group could be more effective than an online survey, for example. Seven, Finally, it's valuable to consider that vulnerability is a strength and the diverse perspectives and talents that immigrants and refugees bring add to our diversity and growth as a society. And that's all for the key points. We also have an executive summary of this interview with links to other resources available to you. And if you're interested to learn more, about our research and the work we do at the Child and Youth Refugee Research Coalition, please visit our website at circ.org. That's C-Y-R-R-C dot org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.